Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to another coronavirus episode of Buker and Friends, part of the United WeCast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, you can hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on Bleacher Report. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear just me talking about what I exclusively feel are the most important or interesting topics in the sports world, primarily, but not exclusively, involving the NBA. And that's here. And it's my great pleasure to have, as my guest today, the head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, J.B. Bickerstaff. J.B., welcome to the show. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Uh, glad you have me. So, JB, I have to ask you what what have you become good at uh, during this sheltering in place, shutdown, lockdown, quarantine, whatever we want to call it, uh, that you never expected that you you might develop that skill? Uh, a PE teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh... <laughs> I, uh, you know, obviously being home with the kids and spending a bunch of time with them and trying to figure out how to keep them on a routine and keep them uh, busy and, you know, still active and doing those types of things that, you know, every single day, well, five days a week while school is in, um, putting together the PE curriculum for them and how we keep them active. You know, they play soccer, they play basketball, baseball, you know, all those things. So, trying to make sure while they couldn't go to practice and just, you know, the small things are, you know, they're little kids. So yeah. coordination, hand-eye coordination and those types of things, uh, trying to put schedules and a curricular curriculum together to help them, you know, get, get better and, you know, stay moving in the right direction. Um, but that's been, you know, from, uh, you know, outside of basketball, that's, that's been my biggest focus. So compare, uh, compare having to coach NBA players to having to coach, uh, your kids. Coaching my kids is by far more difficult. <laughs> um, they, they, you know, they, they get enough of me telling them what to do in every other aspect of their life mm. uh, to now when you're trying to coach them. Um, and obviously they've had other coaches. So, you know, I'm not a baseball coach or a soccer coach by any means. So, you know, when I'm trying to work with them on you know, technique and stuff like that, you know, they're like, well, our coach says we should do it like this. And, you know. So I, I would definitely say trying to convince them that I actually know what I'm talking about uh, is much more difficult. Yeah, I my, my kids are a little bit older. How old are your kids? Uh, six, eight, and nine now. Okay. Um, you'll find, uh, as I have, I, I would imagine, uh, my kids are a little bit older. That uh, that questioning your uh, intelligence <laughs> and insight will will only expand. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> We're heading in the wrong direction. Yeah. It's tough already. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, it, I, I will say this, and I would imagine this is the case for you, but to me, it's been one of the positives that has come out of this is the amount of time that I have been able to spend with my family and with my kids. My kids are, are teenagers, so this is a point where you know they were already on that trajectory to be spending time with more time with their friends hanging out mm -hmm. and as a result we've done a lot of stuff together and I, I just I, I cherish that and I would imagine it's the same for you simply because the demands of the job yeah and, and that's the thing it, it really has been fun 
you know, because once school starts, you know, we're pretty much in basketball season at that point. So they're in school all day. You know, we have shoot arounds and then games at night, you know, we're traveling. So you miss so much of the time. And, and it's been awesome for me to just sit down and individually uh, have, you know, one-on-one conversations with them and just see where their minds go. You know, they're so close in age. Like my son turns seven in August. So they will be seven, eight, nine. They're all like 14, 15 months apart hmm. uh, that we normally always have them all together. You know what I mean? Like no matter what we do, they're always in the group and, you know, because they're so close, they can always play together. But it's been with all of this time, uh, we've had a bunch of opportunity to kind of separate them yeah. and just spend time with them individually, which is awesome because yeah. all three of them are different when they're by themselves uh, than they are when they are, you know, kind of in that group and they're all kind of scrambling, doing the same thing. Um, so it, that's been really fun for uh, myself and my wife to just, you know, spend that time and get to know them and just, you know, some of the things they say, um, you know, it, it just, it's, it's mind blowing to be honest with you. I, I understand. I'm right there with you. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I, it's not an accident that, that I'm having JB on now because of, uh, the circumstances of the world, not just with the coronavirus, but the, the protests over the death of George Floyd. And I, uh, I got to know your dad when I was covering uh, the Washington Wizards and obviously his work with the Denver Nuggets and going back to the Seattle Seattle Supersonics, dating myself here. But um, I, uh, for those who don't know, uh, JB and his dad, Bernie, uh, are the only, uh, as far as I know, the only f- black father-son uh, combination to be head coaches in the NBA. I still think you guys hold that distinction, correct? Am I missing? Yeah, no, I think it's true. And and not, not to, but I think it's in, in all of the four major. Oh, it probably is. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that's special. And, you know, the thing about for me is like just growing up, admiring my dad, you know, to have the opportunity to carry on that legacy means a ton. Um, Because I just remember and you just see like, you know, the doors that he broke down, the people that he helped, um, you know, so I I think his impact on, you know, the NBA uh, and for me to be able to be a part of that, I I mean, it it really is special for me and I I cherish every moment of it. So, so when you think of, of the great, accomplishments or distinctions that your dad those doors that you mentioned that broke down because I I think there's I don't know that everybody has that perspective or understanding of what your dad did that was somewhat revolutionary or what unique um when you when you think about that what are the first things that come to mind where you think you know what my dad allowed this to become somewhat the norm because he was the first to be able to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, being a black coach in the NBA that never played in the NBA, um, you know, opened up the doors for, you know, myself, the Mike Browns of the world, the David Fisdales of the world, the Lloyd Pierce's of the world. Um, you know, you can just kind of go down the list of people and, you know, somehow, some way, you know, he helped open those doors for people to get an opportunity. Obviously, Myself is is self-explanatory, but, you know, he used to coach at the University of San Diego and he hired Mike Brown as his video coordinator in Denver, uh, who in turn, David, you know, Mike Brown went to the University of San Diego. David Fisdale went to the University of San Diego. Um, you know, so there's that tree there. And if you go down the list of the University of San Diego tree in the NBA, uh, it, it's unbelievable now. But, you know, he kind of opened that door and, um, you know, it, it's just, you know, again, being looked at in a different way uh, as a leader and, you know, being trusted with one of these franchises, you know, one of 30 in the world, uh, being able to trust somebody that they can handle the job. Uh, I, I think he gave a lot of people confidence uh, that, you know, people like myself and Mike Brown and David Fisdale uh, could do the job. And I think that's kind of you know, I mean, that's mind blowing when you think about how many coaches there are uh, and how many, how few opportunities there are. Uh, but for us to actually get an opportunity to get those jobs. Yeah. 
did well I'm I'm glad you 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 brought that up and and you brought your kids up because obviously in the context of all this uh you know the thing I was thinking about is and guys talk about it um the talk if you're if mm-hmm. you're black in this country at some point your parents have the talk with you um mm-hmm. which me being white did not have that talk and I, I grew up you know my friends growing up were predominantly black and so i saw how they were treated in circumstances and how i might be treated different or i might be looked at some kind of way because i was with them uh mm-hmm. shout out to tony johnson and chris mukes though by the way grade school <laughs> dudes i don't know where yeah. they are i don't know what they're doing but if they're listening um shout out uh, yeah but uh that said like what was did, did you have that talk uh and and when when did that happen with your dad uh i mean we had that talk multiple times um you know my mom is you know an extremely educated lady who was a school teacher for a long time who you know obviously understood uh what was going on in our society and what i think about this and i was thinking about it just recently with all this stuff going on you know, I am 41 years old now, and both of my parents were born into segregation. Hmm. And if you think about all of the horrible things that happened to black people from, you know, law enforcement, from vigilantes, you know, that their parents saw and that they were taught. And then, you know, it wasn't that long ago. So of course, you know, as we're growing up, we're being taught the same things uh, about the interactions with law enforcement and just how dangerous uh, it could be. Because, you know, I mean, uh, think about it. Like, that's what they knew and that's what they saw every single day. So the conversations um, that they have with us was, I mean, it, it was ongoing and it was constant hmm. uh, about how we make sure that we protect ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the things you can and can't do, the things you can't say, um, you know, and I remember uh, being in the car with my dad one night when we got pulled over by the police and, you know, how he defused the situation hmm. by, you know, he just got pulled over for speeding. And, he, you know, the guy came up to him and my dad just said, you know what, you got me. I was speeding. And, you know it diffused the situation because there was no confrontation. It was, Hey, you know, let, let's, you know, uh, there is no argument here. You know, I'm going to you do what you got to do. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, you know, talking back or being disrespectful or anything, but you know, I, I remember that distinctly, like, you know, if you're put in that situation, you know, the, the most important thing you can do is put the police officer at ease and make sure that they don't feel that you're of any type of threat to them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my mom and my dad, you know, it was the speech was comply to the best of your ability. Hmm. Um, you know, we had an instance in our family when we were living in Seattle at the time. And my dad was the head coach of the Supersonics where my sister was taken out of a car, you know, in the snow and in the, you know, in the cold, her and a group of her friends and held on the side of the road. Um, because, you know, they fit the description Mm. is what they were told. So, you know, no matter the, you know, like I said, my dad was the head coach of the Supersonics at the time, but it didn't matter. You know, they didn't care. Uh, And then obviously they were let go. And then, you know, they found out who my sister was eventually. And of course, you know, then the apologies come. But, um, you know, so those are things that, you know, as black people, we don't get to escape. Right. And, you know, it, it's, it's scary now. And I, I find myself and all this stuff reflecting, but I've projected those same fears onto my kids. And, you know, I've tried to have the conversations with them lately and try to help correct it, you know, but like they feel what I feel mm. and, you know, trying to convince them otherwise now that they've had, you know, this, and again, you know, they're young, so they're not really in charge of their emotions and their thoughts yet, but, you know, they have felt the fears that I feel 
and I'm trying to work with them now um, to get through that, but still understanding, you know, how to be safe. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the thing that I know about my kid. you know, kids are Geiger counters. They like, I can say a lot of things, but they're watching and reading me. And that's where their most important questions come from in situations. Mm -hmm. And so I would imagine you had that same experience with your dad. Like what, do you recall, you know, seeing a situation where you just got the feeling like, oh, th you know, this is an uh-oh moment. Like, why is this? And maybe it was in, maybe it was, you know, getting pulled over for speeding. Maybe it was another time. I'm just wondering, like, that first time you had that visceral feeling like things are different here and they're, you know, why are they different? And they seem to be different because of the color of my skin. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, and it's, 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 yes, it sticks out in my mind. And, it's, and this one doesn't have to deal with the police. But this one has to deal with there was a time in the summer where my mom was out of town and my dad was home with us alone. And my dad took us to the grocery store and we were in the produce section. And I'll never forget it. There was a white lady with her purse in the small part of the cart where the kids sometimes sit. Mm -hmm. And my dad walked there just to get some lettuce. You know, I was 11 or 12 years old at this time. We were in Denver and he walked across, you know, just near there to get some lettuce. And the lady looked at him and snatched her purse up mm. and tucked it under her arm. And I remember looking at my dad and just seeing the disgust, you know, on his face that, you know, this lady thought that in the middle of the grocery store that he was going to steal her purse with his kids sitting there. Yeah. You know, and I, I, you know, and he was visibly upset. You know, my dad always, you know, tried his best to, you know, keep his emotions away from us and not let us. We, so, you know, when we didn't know how he was feeling, but like I could see it and I'll never forget that, you know, that moment. And it was like, you know, and in my mind, you know, I look at my dad at this point, you know, he's the general manager and president of the Denver Nuggets. Like, why would this lady think that he's going to steal her purse? You know what I mean? Like yep. what's so valuable in her purse that, you know, the guy that I look up to so much and I admire so much is going to want what's in her, you know, in her little leather bag or whatever. Right. And, you know, so it, it stuck out in my mind. It was just like, you know, we aren't, or, you know, we aren't that far from, you know, where my dad grew up and the things that he had to see and the way that he was treated uh, you know, a lot of that stuff hasn't gone and, and it's still to this day, you know, it hasn't passed. Yeah. How how do you, and it's that juxtaposition, because I think there's a lot of people out there that look at, and I'm glad you, you, you shared that story because there's, I feel as if, and this is from my experience of, you know, being around the league some 25 years, is that there is a perception that, oh, well, if you're, you know, if you're a professional athlete or you're a head coach or you've made it into the, social class of uh you know being in the nba you're not subject to racism or prejudice and and i've seen otherwise and and so i know that that's that's not true how do you go about handling that though where you have that like people find out who you are or what you do and they're like you can just see the change right you can see the switch mm -hmm. Um, prior to, they don't know who you are and they're just judging you again because of the color of your skin and you see, you see a completely different look. I, how do you handle that? Uh, it's tough. And what it's ended up doing is making me probably more closed off than I want to be. Hmm. Um, you know, I am an outgoing people person. 
but I do have the fear and the distrust of, you know, why people treat you a certain way and you see it. And there are, you know, there are genuine people of all colors who just want to get to know people and they'll treat you the same. And I genuinely believe that there are more of those people than there are of the other. The second group of people are the type of people who beyond race or religion will treat you different because of a feel of some sort of celebrity status or, you know, something that they can gain where, you know, if they feel like you can't help them, um, you know, no matter what your color is, they don't want anything to do with you. But if you are a celebrity and you can bring them some sort of popularity, like they overlook your skin color. And then there's just, you know, the blatant racist. Right. So I think there's, you know, there's those three buckets that people can fall in. And, you know, it, it, it is hard for me because, you know, in the arenas that we work in, yeah. you know, there are people of color who are, you know, the ushers, who are security guards, who are, you know, the people that function every single day to make our business thrive that may not get the attention or may not be seen. And, you know, you watch how some of them get treated. But then you watch how, you know, that same person who disrespected the usher uh, is cheering so loudly and celebrating, you know, with one of, you know, the players on the floor who looks just like that usher. But because of the difference in, you know, fame or celebrity or value in their mind, uh, it's okay to cheer for them and be with them. So uh, it is frustrating. And again, you know, we keep our circle small. Um you know, it's harder because you see the thing, you know, I mean, your kids go to school, um, you know, who wants to be their friend and why, you yeah. know, the kids don't care, you know what I mean? But like, you know, the parents start to get involved and then those things become different. Um, you know, for us growing up, you know, it was tough trying to figure out who really wanted to be our friend and who wanted to be our friend because our dad was an NBA coach or, you know, we can get tickets to the game. Like those are things that are, you know, difficult to deal with, uh, and why, like when you find your true friends, you know, you stick with them. Like my closest group of friends, uh, one of them I met in the seventh grade, the other one I met in the ninth grade. Um, you know, and those are still my boys to this day. Um, you know, and then obviously I've got friends that are in this business because they don't need anything from you or they don't want anything from you. So, um, it, it puts a ton of pressure on, um, you know, trying to build outside relationships and figuring out who you can and can't trust. Yeah. Uh, you've coached, uh, you were the head coach in Memphis. Um, and obviously you're in, you're in Cleveland now. And I, and your dad's was born in Benham, Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken. And, mm -hmm. um, started out at the university, university of Rio Grande in Ohio, which, <laughs> So I grew up in Cincinnati, and I remember that when I was uh, my first two years, I was on the I was in the marching band, um, played trumpet, oh, wow. and we went to the University of Rio Grande for a week for band camp, and stayed in the dorms oh, wow. there. And so uh -huh. I know where it is, and I kind of I I, I remember that um, he didn't have a good experience there, and I growing up in in Cincinnati and. I'm working on a memoir with with uh, Brian Grant, who's from Georgetown, Ohio. Grew up in a little town on the on the Ohio River banks, and um, and so I know that part of the country well. What uh, what do you know? Have you been to Benham, Kentucky? What do you know about the circumstances of your dad growing up in that area? Um, so I've been to Benham one time, uh, maybe twice now. I'm sorry. The first time we went, uh, they dedicated, you know, the major street uh, is now Bernard Bickerstaff Boulevard in Benham, Kentucky. At the time we went there, there was less than 2,000 people that live in the town. Uh -huh. um, it is a small coal mining town that was, you know, people stayed in that town and in that community uh, and everybody knew one another. Uh, families were very tight knit. You know, my dad. Uh, was there and was raised pretty much by his grandparents. Um, you know, they had their own chickens, their own hog, they grew their own vegetable. You know, they, that was, they were a self-sufficient uh, group, um, but a very tight-knit group. 
Um, and, you know, obviously that time you think about it, the coal mining industry was extremely tough. Uh, it's a tough way to make a living, you know, and obviously growing up in a segregated South at the time is extremely yep. difficult uh, as well. So, um, you know, it, it's now we went back and there's the hotel that there used to be the schoolhouse. So they changed all the classrooms into um, hotel rooms now. So it's pretty, you know, it's pretty interesting to think about, you know, the halls that your dad used to walk is now uh, the hotel where you stay when you go to visit. But yeah. um, we went to Rio Grande one time and it was when he got an honorary doctorate there. Um, you know, he doesn't, it's pretty interesting. He doesn't talk a lot about, um, you know, his time in different places. You know, he, he spends most of his time, you know, he educates us on, you know, life experience and those types of things. But, um, you know, he wouldn't tell us about if he had a bad experience or if things were hard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he always seems to tell us about how he found some positives out of it and how it led to the next step. So um, I don't rem- I honestly I was in high school probably when we went there. So I don't remember a ton about it. Um, but like his his story is I mean, it's is incredible. Uh, you know, how you go from there and end up in San Diego uh, playing for Phil Woolport, who coached Casey Jones and Bill Russell at the University of San Diego, yeah. um, you know, from that small school in Ohio. And again, I don't know if you know the story, but he was supposed to go play at UC San Diego for Bob Kloppenberg. I don't know if you remember Bob yeah, Kloppenberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was yeah. He was, he was, uh, coach. yeah. Yeah. So, he was supposed to go play for Bob Kloppenberg and some guys asked him to go play pickup over at the university of San Diego. And so he goes over there to play pickup and Phil Wolpert happens to see him playing. And he's like, Hey, you know, who are you? And he tells him who he is. And he says, you know, I'm going to play for Bob Kloppenberg over at UC San Diego. And Phil Wolpert says, no, you're not, <laughs> you're going to come here and you're going to play uh, with us at the university of San Diego. And just the chain of events that that started, you know, obviously he plays there, he gets an assistant job there, then he becomes the head coach. But Phil Wolpert introduces him to Casey Jones. They become best friends. Casey Jones is my brother's godfather. Casey Jones gets the job with the Bullets. He brings my dad with him to the Bullets. So it's like, you know, this crazy chain of events for, I mean, you think about how I mean, the odds of it actually happening for a kid from Benham, Kentucky to end up where he was, you know, all the way out in San Diego. I mean, it was, you know, astronomical to none, basically. Well, I will say knowing both the Rio Grande campus and the USD campus, he he made a major upgrade (laughs) right right there alone. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. No. That's one of my favorite campuses in the world in the world, by the way. I love University of San Diego. Man, gorgeous, gorgeous place. I I first ran into Hank Egan there when I was just starting out in in my career was the was the head coach uh, at USD at the time um because you have lived and coached in memphis and now in ohio and you've experienced you experienced all that like what 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 have you learned about the way this country works in various places because i think there's also a perception that all black people are the same and all black people are treated the same even though if you look at, you know, somebody white from Seattle or California versus somebody, you know, white from Alabama or Florida or New York, we always see those distinctions, right? People readily see right. those distinctions. I don't know that they see them, you know, with 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 people of other uh in other races. Like what what has informed you or what have you learned by being in some of these different places. And I have to say it just because I grew up in Ohio and um, like, I'm fascinated by that whole kind of Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, that whole region, because the underground railroad uh, ended or suppose, you know, was, was once you crossed the Ohio river, you were supposed to be free. And yet I know that that, you know, those, those, the mentality on the Kentucky side certainly made its way over to the Ohio side readily. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And and you know what it was, it was, again, all this time on our hands and these things coming up, you know, you have an opportunity to do just to educate yourself. And 
one of the things that I it it kind of blew my mind was that there's if you look at the numbers there's between 12 and 14 percent of America is African American and what I think is because of that small number you know people don't get an opportunity to see black people for what they truly are in different places in different regions you know they just lump us all into one Mm. and normally that that lump is whatever they see on tv Mm. because there's not a lot of environments where there's a truly blended culture right where you know a, a lot of black people a lot of white people you know, are interacting in the same places. There's, you know, there's some, some small parts of our country, you know, I would say DC is one of those places where, you know, you'll find a blended group, uh, you know, a few places like that. But so for, you know, because there are such a small percentage of black people, uh, a lot of people don't take the, the time to get to know and it just go off of what they see, like what they see in movies, what they see uh, on the news, what they see on social media, like, and they just assume that, you know, all black people must be that way. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, we have this opportunity on our hands right now. And, and, and again, I'll make this point and I don't, I don't want this to sound um, any, any way, but like, I do genuinely believe there are more good people out there and open-minded people out there than there are the other. Uh, but what I feel like is still important is even those open-minded people need to take the opportunity to educate themselves on the history of this country yeah. and the history of the people who right now that they, you know, who have, they stood arm in arm with, you know, black people protesting. Uh, you know, and I think it's important that, you know, you hear some of the comments that are being made by people who I think are, you know, good hearted and well, well intended, intended. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some of the comments, you know, are ignorant right now sure. um, because they just haven't done, you know, they haven't educated themselves on on the whole cause and why people are just so upset. So, um, you know, in different regions, and, and I'll never forget this, the thing that I'll, you know, remember most about kind of moving and what kind of opened my eyes is when I went to Charlotte with my dad um, to be his assistant coach for the first time. And I remember going to Charlotte in our practice facility was in Fort Mill at the time because we hadn't built the practice facility or the new arena wasn't finished uh, when we were the expansion team. And I never forget how many Confederate flags mm. that I saw on cars and, you know, living in Denver and Seattle, you know, like you didn't, you just, you just didn't see it, sure. you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, you go to college, I went to college in Oregon and Minnesota and, you know, lived in Arizona. You know what I mean? Like, so, for me, like that was mind blowing uh, to actually sit there and see that. And from that point forward, you know, I kind of went into every situation that, that was new, yeah. um, you know, not knowing what to expect, yeah. but to expect something different uh, than where I had been before, because before it's pretty uniform. You know what I mean? Like people get along, you know, you're part of the, the, the new West or, you know, you're up North or whatever it may be. Um, so it was it was it was eye opening for me, but uh, you know, like the Memphis experience, you know, and this is what I think we all need to make sure we pay attention to is there are great people everywhere, and when you don't live in Memphis, you don't appreciate Memphis. Um, but when you get there and you start to meet the people that are on the right side of things, and there's a ton of them there, mm. um, you know, you you'll fall in love with the city and with the people. Um, you know, people, you know, they, they get a bad rap cause they're on, you know, uh, the first 48 and all that stuff. But like, if you get to know the people of Memphis, it's a really awesome place. And there's some truly genuine, uh, people there. I'm still in the process here in Ohio of getting to know people. Obviously it's been a shorter period of time, but we're, we're working on that and we've met some great people here too. So, um, you know, my thing is you go in open-minded, you give people a chance. Uh, and you try to make the best of it because, again, I, I do believe um, there are more good people out there than uh, than than shitty ones. Yeah, that's really well said. I I wonder how you feel about and I, I you know th- this has been inflated because of who he is and 
because of social media and everything, but um, Drew Brees and his talking about Colin Kaepernick and, and, and just, I don't want to focus on what Drew Brees said, um, but in, in general, I think there's also the perception that if you're in professional sports uh, or if you have black teammates, uh, black coaches, whatever it may be, well, you can't be racist or you can't have racist views. And, and again, like I, I know that you know, people are going to sound crazy maybe to some people, but there's race, There's a certain inherent racism that exists everywhere, including in the NBA. And um, I, I just, when, when you heard or you saw what happened as a result of Drew Brees' comments and that difficult conversation that now has to happen with Drew and his teammates and the, you know, getting a team to function. Uh, what, what was, what were your thoughts? Like, have you ever experienced that with a, with a team where you had, you know, a, a, a white member of the organization or the team or whatever, where there was a, like, you suddenly became aware of different views and had to be worked through to kind of get everybody back to being able to function in the profession. Yeah, and and for me, just like keeping it on the Drew Brees situation, yeah, is I don't think that he's a bad person. I think that he has, you know, because of the level of success that he's had, the conversations with his teammates and the understanding of what's going on have been shallow conversations and haven't been the conversation in depth mm. for him to have a full understanding of what exactly was meant and, it, and it's it's so obvious and it's just you know it was the colin kaepernick kneeling was never about the disrespect of the flag right. or the disrespect of our soldiers colin kaepernick went to you know former officers and had conversations with them about what was the best thing to do and he got direct of advice from them and I think if you don't take the time to know that, you completely miss the point and you're likely to say, you know, things like Drew Brees said and miss the point on what exactly was going on. Right. And that brings me to something else. And I try to stay out of this, but it's been, you know, I, I, it's been brewing in a couple of days is, you know, these people who, you know, in the past have told black athletes to shut up and dribble, hmm. right? And then I see the clip of this same person who has Drew Brees, who now is a, a white athlete, obviously, and their comment on him is, he's a human being, doesn't he have worth, shouldn't he be able to have an opinion? Yeah. And then the, the, the person behind chiming in that he's a good Christian man. Right. And, you know, so now... Explain to me the difference. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? When when black guys, when black athletes have an opinion, it's shut up and dribble. When a white guy has an opinion, it's he has worth. He deserves to have his own opinion. Yep. You know, as long as that hypocrisy is allowed to be on TV, like we're not going to go the places that we want to go. Yep. Um, and I know some people have spoke out, but, you know, to me, that's disgusting and it's blatant racism um by you know people who have a huge market and you know the networks continue to let them have that market mm -hmm. and you wonder why you know certain people can't get past uh certain biases and it's because of you know the people who are in control of those networks that allow that type of stuff to continue to be said and yeah. gone unchecked this is what i struggle with when it comes to colin kaepernick and i bring this up because it's a it's a burden that your dad, you, um, everyone who is is black and has a platform uh, faces, and I've I from the very beginning I admired Colin's cause. I I hated the fact that people tried to suggest that you know somehow his cause was interrupting his team when he was you know v voted the Len Eshmon Award as the the most inspirational courageous person on the team. His his issues playing had nothing to do with his his activism. Uh, 
I do believe that he was kept out of the NFL because of his activism, which just inherently feels wrong to me. It wasn't because of his ability. And, but, but I, I feel as if Colin wasn't fully prepared to be the spokesman or the front man that he ended up being. And I don't even know if he intended to become what he ultimately became. And this is what I struggle with is his purpose and his cause are so important that you can't go at it casually. It's honestly, it's one of the re- it's one of the criticisms that I have of of LeBron James for as socially active as he is. It's like Dude, you're so big and everything you do is so important is going to be scrutinized so much. If you really want to be an agent for change, you have to be on point all the time. And on point in a way that maybe, you know, the average person, a white person doesn't have to be, but that's just the reality of the situation. And and so that's and I'm sure you've faced the same thing. I mean, I'm sure you've had to be on your P's and Q's in a way that you look across the way and you go, "Hey, that I don't have that same I don't have that same burden in order to get to where I want to go." So, I, I first of all, I don't want to assume that. I, you know, have you had that experience, and how have you gone about dealing with the fact that, you know, the stack may the deck may be stacked and the demands on you may be greater. Again, simply because of you know your, the the color of your skin, how have you navigated that? Friend of mine, you know David Fisdale, recently just wrote an article, and he talked about the decisions that you know, black coaches, black players, have to make when you know when you use your voice, but at the same time trying to protect the things that you've achieved, understanding how difficult it is to achieve those things. And we do live uh, cautiously, to be honest with you. Um, you know, again, there's one in, we are one of 30 uh, in this league and we've worked extremely hard to make this happen. And you want to be careful and you want to keep your job and you want to be able to support and take care of your family. Um, but at certain moments, you know, you have to do what's right and you have to be willing to say things that may make people be uncomfortable. And you have to trust that the people that you're working for uh, have the same well intentions that you do. And I'm fortunate because here in Cleveland, I definitely believe that the conversations we've had, um, the people have been, you know, from the top down. So I feel comfortable uh, being able to make these comments now because, you know, they're not divisive comments. They're about bringing people together and helping people understand uh, where we're coming from. Um, you know, the situation I look at with Colin Kaepernick is the people who ridiculed him are the people that didn't want to see black people step out of the boxes that they put them in. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is, you know, uh, is systematic in our society is, as long as you stay between these lines, uh, you know, athlete, uh, black person, you know, person of color, you know, female athlete, like as long as you stay in these lines, it's okay with you. Right. But, you know, if you step outside of those lines, you know, we question you. And now, you know, we don't like that because you're making us uncomfortable. Mm. Those are the people that spoke out against Colin Kaepernick uh, and, you know, the Megan Rapinos of the world. Like, those are those people that get uncomfortable yeah. when, you know, racial or ethnic or uh, gender stereotypes are being broken down and they don't really want you to do that. You know what I mean? Like things have been too good for them for too long and they don't want you encroaching on their territory. Yeah. Those are the people that got upset when guy, you know, when, when those things happen. So I, I hear their noise as just that their noise is a way to distract people from, what exactly the cause is and we're here now and i you know i love the fact that pete carroll came out and said what he had to say about colin kaepernick years ago you know what i mean like he he recognized that colin kaepernick was right on and it took us this long to figure out that what his message was and there are and i am extremely encouraged by the conversations that i've had 
with some, you know, extremely intelligent and bright people about how we can make progress uh, in this on this issue. And, you know, it wasn't there, you know, when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling. Mm. The enthusiasm wasn't there from other people. You know, other people believed it, that it was wrong. They believed police brutality was wrong. But their enthusiasm and energy and willingness to get behind it wasn't there. And now I believe their energy is there. And I, I think it's, you know, it's time to strike and it's time to strike with a consistent message and approach where we're, we're not going to stop until we see progress. And I think that's where the problem has been in trying to create change is we see something happen, then we react. Yeah. The news cycle changes and then we stop reacting. So, you know, my thought and how we're trying to approach this is, you know, let's keep working now in prevention so that when something happens, you know, or hopefully nothing happens again, but we're not just reacting to situations, you know, when they happen and we're trying to do something proactive here uh, as best we possibly can. So there's this this line you have to walk uh, for you where you have this platform and you have this opportunity to do this very rare thing and you certainly want to protect that and take care of your family. You also, I would think, want to be, you know, true to yourself and true to your dad's legacy and, and, and all of that. How do you feel about your ability to do that and marry those things now where we are versus maybe where you felt just three, four years ago? Well, I think, you know, today we're in a much better place, more comfortable position to do that. And that's today as opposed to two weeks ago, to be quite frank with you. Um, you know, it, it is not easy. And again, I feel comfort because of the place that I'm at, that I know I have people who support me in doing what I'm trying to do. Hmm. Uh, that's where it comes, you know, being a young coach who hasn't achieved championships or who hasn't achieved, you know, the accolades that some of the other, you know, coaches have, you can't feel comfortable unless the people around you make you feel comfortable. And right now I'm in a place where I feel extremely comfortable that the people around me and the people who are the heavy hitters who make the decisions are standing on the side of right and are willing to have my back and completely support me in this. Um, you know, and, and that's why I feel comfortable being able to say the things that I'm standing, you know, hopefully they will impact change. Hopefully we will see some different uh, results, uh, you know, coming out of this where people are together and, you know, moving forward in the same direction. Yeah. Well, look, JB, there's plenty that I'd love to get into about uh, we're, we're recording this shortly after the league has decided that it's coming back and will play this summer. Um, obviously, the Cleveland Cavaliers and, and seven other teams were not invited to the return party. And that presents challenges, I think, for a, a young team like the Cavs, uh, among some of the other ones. I think the Atlanta Hawks are, are in the same boat. And I would love to talk to you about all of that, but it honestly, it kind of feels trivial to try to add that to this conversation at this point. So what I'd like to do is let's get a couple months down the road and, uh, and bring you back and, and maybe we'll have something to talk about that'll be more basketball related if, uh, if you'd be up for that. Because I just, I, I really thank you for your, your honesty and willingness to talk about this. I just feel as if these are the conversations that need to be had for people just to kind of get a glimpse of your experience, your dad's experience, and uh, and and that that is, you know, the fortunately the kind of the enlightenment that I had growing up and being around the NBA, and and I just think there's value there, and so I want to thank you uh, especially for you know, going outside the box, because this is not the normal <laughs> conversation right. that an NBA head coach has, but I think that we're in extraordinary times and it certainly has its value. Right. I, I mean, I, I thank you and I thank you for having this conversation. You know what I mean? Like, I think you have an audience 
um, and people need to hear these conversations on their own. You know, I think there's a lot of us who know different people and know different, you know, ethnicity, ethnicities and colors and religions. And, you know, we need to take the time to truly get to know them and understand makes them tick and how we all work. And that's the only way that we'll, you know, we can be the country that we, we aim to be if we continue to have those conversations uh, and knowledge of one another. Um, but this is awesome. And, you know, anytime you need me, just holler at me. Sounds good. All right. That does it for this episode of Buker and Friends. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with JB. I know this was more of a non-basketball subject than you're used to hearing here, but in looking at everything that was going on in the world and really not being that enamored with making statements on social media and yet wanting to somehow address the subject or contribute to it in a positive way, uh, that was my attempt here. It's why I invited JB on. Uh, I knew his history, knew his history with his dad, and I thought his perspective would be interesting. Hope you found it so. Uh, Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get it. And if you want us to do something for you, send that rating or review to at Buker Friends on Twitter and you will be eligible to win some prizes. In the next podcast, we'll either be getting into sort of the ins and outs of how the NBA is going to restart things and the issues that may come up, uh, the advantages that some teams may have. Uh, I also want to catch up with Will Blackman at some point talk about his perspective with what's going on in the NFL and Drew Brees. One of those in the next podcast, certainly in upcoming podcasts. In the meantime, please stay safe, sane, and thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 